On Sunday, the 18th of February at Lighthouse in Harlow, we uh, had a system failure and our recording laptop did not record at least the first half of the morning sermon. Um, And so I'm taking the rather unusual step of re-recording at least the first half of that sermon as best I can, going back to my notes, uh, sitting at home at the desk uh, to... uh, get that out there because I feel that these are foundational truths and I want people to be able to catch up on the internet and on CD uh, um, as we go through Ephesians together. So having dealt with our salvation in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, in the rest of this chapter we're picking up again on another thread from chapter 1 which is this issue of inheritance. In Ephesians 1.11 it says we have also received an inheritance from him. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. In verse 18, I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Well, what is this inheritance? Uh, We'll come to that a bit later, but let me now be clear. In chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians, we come to some declarations of Scripture concerning Israel. Now, perhaps for most of us, as soon as we hear that word, we think of a map in the Middle East, uh, the Jewish nation state there, and that blue and white national flag with the Star of David. And a great number of American and British evangelicals fail to make any distinction between Israel in Scripture and that modern nation-state of Israel. In fact, every mention of Israel is automatically taken to be referring to the Jewish nation-state. That tendency has been labelled Christian Zionism. I do not subscribe to that tendency. Let me begin today with some background, and then we'll open up what Paul's letter, which we label Ephesians, but was probably a general letter to a number of churches in what is now Turkey, what this letter tells us about Israel. In other words, what Scripture actually teaches us about Jesus, about his church, his community, and Israel. I must begin with some background about how Israel came into being. It started with one man and his wife. God chose, called, and made covenant with Abraham, then chose Isaac, who was not actually Abraham's firstborn, then Jacob, who also was not Isaac's firstborn, and then Joseph, who was far from Jacob's firstborn. In fact, he was appointed as firstborn heir, though born as number 11 of 12 sons. To Abraham, God gave the covenant sign of circumcision. He gave him covenant promises and covenant responsibility. The heir in each case was not simply the naturally firstborn, but God's choice. That was how the Lion of Israel came about. Through Jacob, whom the Lord renamed Israel, and the offspring of his twelve sons becoming Israel's twelve tribes. That is the Abrahamic covenant, God making covenant with Abraham. Now when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God brought them out and gave them the Mosaic covenant, the covenant or the law through Moses. In the time of Moses, the Lord delivered them from slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with them, giving them the law, which Paul in 
uh, and the New Testament argues that the law was a tutor or like a like a, a schoolmaster to keep them under discipline until Messiah came. In the wilderness under Moses, they were formed into a nation under law, yet their tribal identities continued for centuries. And so the second great covenant there is the Mosaic, the Mo- covenant under Moses. In time, God gave them a king after his own heart. God chose David as king of Israel and made covenant with him. So we speak of the Davidic covenant. That covenant promised that David's offspring or seed would rule Israel forever. Those three covenants shaped and defined Israel. David's son Solomon succeeded him, but after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was divided with the main part of ten tribes of Israel in the north continuing to be called Israel but were ruled by a series of kings who generally gained the throne by killing their predecessor and two tribes continuing in the south as the kingdom of Judah under the descendants of David. The ten northern tribes had rejected both the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. They became idolaters. They rejected, really, the God of Israel. And though they were called Israel, they were not really Israel. Yet it was to this rebellious northern kingdom that the Lord sent some of his best servants and messengers, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Jonah, Hosea. Such was the mercy of God that for a couple of hundred years God sent his servants to call that, those tribes back to faithfulness. But eventually the northern kingdom was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians in 721 BC. And those ten tribes are mostly lost from history. Just a few people from those tribes appear later in scripture. So some families must have moved south to Judah at some time to be faithful to the God of Israel, to be faithful to uh, the kingdom of David. Uh, but probably before the fall of the northern kingdom, they had resettled in the south. From that time, the fall of Samaria and of Israel in the north, Israel became a prophetic and symbolic name, as did any reference to the twelve tribes. That whole body of tribes and people simply no longer existed. The remaining southern kingdom was not Israel as a whole, though sometimes called that, but was in fact the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah were very good at continuing faithfulness to the God of Israel. And the Babylonians overthrew the kingdom of Judah in 586 BC and the Jewish people were taken into exile in Babylon. The kingdom, the empire of the Babylonians fell to the Medes and Persians. And later Cyrus, the head of the Medo-Persian empire, decreed as prophesied before by Isaiah that the Jews could return to their land. And after 70 years of captivity, a remnant of Jewish people, just over 42,000 at first, began to return to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and to repopulate Judea. During the time from the division of the nation to after the time of restoration of that remnant from exile, the Lord faithfully sent his prophets to his people. And we have that history and we have their writings in our Bibles. Among those prophecies were declarations of God's purpose, that one day the nations, the Gentiles, would in time be joined to Israel and would bow down and worship Israel's God. 
And in fact, as we turn to the Lord Jesus now, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, two Gentile women are named, one of whom had a rather immoral history, who joined Israel and were his ancestors. So let's think now about the Messianic covenant. Jesus was born from the line of David in Bethlehem and was indeed the Messiah of Israel. God's anointed one, the long-promised saviour and ruler. Let me say here that for the sake of clarity and emphasis, I have today substituted Messiah for Christ in all the scriptures we will read. He was indeed the king of the Jews, as Pilate's notice on Golgotha's cross advertised. Judea was then not a Davidic kingdom, but a province of the Roman Empire. What did Jesus come and live and die to bring in? The new, the final covenant. He made it in his own blood. And it was delivered to and through the Jewish people. But we Gentiles, the nations, the pagans, were outside Israel, that covenant people of God, the heirs of the promises of God. So let's now go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.11 So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without or outside the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul lists this number of points about the Gentiles. We were uncircumcised, circumcision being the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, and therefore the mark of being sons and heirs of Abraham. We were without the Messiah. He was never promised to us directly. We were excluded from the citizenship, or uh, some, some versions have the commonwealth of Israel. We weren't citizens. We didn't belong. We were foreigners to the covenants of promise. The promises were never made to us, but to those patriarchs, and to, Moses, to Abraham and through Moses and to David. We were not the people of God. We were outside, excluded. The Lord Jehovah, Yahweh, had not appeared to us, had not spoken to us. He had not given us his law, said his king over us, sent us his prophets. We had no covenant, no promises, no citizen, no hope, no God. But notice, please, what comes next. Ephesians 2.13 But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. God has brought us near by the blood of Messiah. The way that Rabbi spoke of proselytes, converts to Judaism, was those who were brought near. In Jesus we've been brought near, in fact brought right into God's presence. 
And this was done not by our conversion to Judaism, but by the substitution and sacrifice of the Son of God in our place, by his blood. And that expression, in Messiah, by his blood, repeats through these early sections of this letter. Grace has this foundation, the person of Jesus Messiah himself, and the atonement of Jesus Messiah at the cross. Jesus Messiah is our peace. By his atonement, he's made peace with God for us, a peace we can know in him. This peace is the setting aside of God's just wrath against us because Jesus has died in our place for our sin and made reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus. And peace is the experience and enjoyment of that reconciliation and acceptance. It is rest in the love of God. Then Jesus has made both groups one. Paul is speaking here of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles made one? Yes, indeed. More on that to come. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. There was, in Herod's temple, a barrier. It may have been even just a kind of fence. It was called the Soreg, across the courtyard, beyond which Gentiles could not go to approach the holy place, the sanctuary itself. They would be killed if they did so. Soreg stones that marked the boundary have been found by archaeologists in Jerusalem. And it seems that the, the stones bore the same message in different languages. The inscription retranslates as follows. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. And whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. That seems to me a polite way of saying, we'll kill you. <laughs> Jesus has removed the boundary that kept Gentiles out. Jews and Gentiles have the same full access to the God of Israel and not to some earthly sanctuary, but to the heavenly throne room of the Most High. Then Jesus has made the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations of no effect. The law of Moses bound Israel to obedience and excluded the Gentiles. That law, that covenant, has been superseded. The rituals, the festivals, the observances, the food laws, all have passed away, overtaken by the new covenant made by the blood of Messiah. But that does not mean that God's moral law is abolished. It still sets out the righteousness and wisdom of God and measures sin. And I say again, most of the moral law, most of the precepts of how we conduct ourselves to be upright are in fact repeated in the New Testament in the teaching of the Lord Jesus and in the writings of the apostles. We are not those who reject and break God's moral law, but those who keep his law. But our debt to the whole system of law and a duty of obedience to the regulation of Mosaic law has been cancelled. Here is how Paul vividly states this in the parallel section of Colossians, which of course Colossians is a parallel letter to Ephesians. Colossians 2.14 he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. A certificate of debt can't marked through, cancelled, nailed perhaps to a doorpost. It wouldn't be an interesting thing if when we paid off our mortgages we would sta st uh, staple the, the certificate of debt completed, debt cancelled to our doorpost. Jesus has cancelled our debt to the law. 
and Paul imagines it as being a certificate that's cancelled and nailed to the cross. In Romans 10.14 it says, Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Jesus is made of believing Jews and Gentiles one new man in himself through the cross. There are not two peoples of God, Jew and Gentile. There is one new man in Christ Jesus. The peace which we have with God becomes the peace between us, Jew and Gentile believers, in Messiah. He's made us one body in himself. He's put to death the hostility between us and God, and therefore also the death, the hostility between us as Jew and Gentile. How? In his own body given on the cross. It's hard to imagine Paul putting a stronger case than he has here. Yet this teaching is ignored by many Christians who've been told for the last almost 200 years that God has two communities, Israel and the church, and they will remain separate forever. That's one of the central tenets of dispensationalism. It is said that the people of Israel are God's natural or physical people, while the church is his spiritual people. I have found no such categorization in Scripture. And that is quite the opposite of what Scripture is saying here. In fact, through Romans, Paul argues that there is now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are under sin, whether with, with the law or without the law. All fall short of the glory of God. All are offered salvation in Jesus Messiah. The only way to God for both Jew and Gentile is faith in Jesus Messiah. There are not two ways of faith and salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Messiah Jesus. That applies equally to Jews and to Gentiles. There is no distinction. Yet there is this difference, and it's set out clearly in Romans chapters 9 to 11. In the wisdom of God, Messiah came through Israel, but he was rejected by the authorities of that time, so that the Jewish nation as a body, as a whole, did not receive the kingdom of God in Messiah. Through their rejection and unbelief, the gospel was brought to the Gentiles. Paul describes this as natural branches being broken off from the olive tree, olive tree representing Israel, through unbelief, and wild branches, Gentiles, being grafted in. But the natural branches which were broken off may in time be regrafted. And when the harvest of the Gentile nations to faith in Messiah Jesus is full, the Jewish people will also be granted repentance unto life and will come to the same faith in Messiah Jesus in a last great harvest gathering to him before the end of the age. We live in anticipation of the Lord Jesus having the greatest harvest yet of people bowing in faith obedience to the honour of his name. And as the old Purit English Puritans used to say, we will rejoice to see our older brothers, the Jewish people, coming in before the end. So let's now go back over those negatives of verses 11 to 12. Every one of them is reversed. We believers in Jesus Messiah are now the true circumcision. Colossians 2.11 says, You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Messiah. 
Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. And then in Philippians 3, I should really mention verse 2, where there are two words here. In verse 2 it says, we're not of the, the uh, mutilation. Uh, or some versions have the false circumcision. Verse 3 says, we are the circumcision. The ones who serve by the Spirit of God boast in Messiah Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. There are more verses in Scripture about the issue of circumcision in the New Testament. And, uh, I have some notes on that if you want to follow. We are included in Messiah. That is the repeating statement of the early part of this letter. In him, in him. We're saved because we're in him. Outside of him, we would be lost. We're included in the citizenship of Israel. Believing Gentiles have joined Israel, just as the prophets of Israel and Judah declared centuries before. We are heirs to the covenants of promise. Pause there on that, on that point. No matter who claims to be the rightful heirs to Abraham, and therefore the claiming to be the heirs to a land in the Middle East. Scripture teaches that we who are believers in Messiah Jesus are heirs of the promise of God made to Abraham. We are Abraham's children. That is very clear. And it does not say spiritual. It does not qualify that statement at all. Go and look at Galatians chapter 3, for instance. We have hope. We have God in this world. We are no longer godless Gentiles, but we are believers in God, like Abraham, the man of faith. To borrow from William Hendrickson in his commentary, we are no longer Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. Let's push on in Ephesians 2, verse 17 to 18. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by the one Spirit to the Father. Those who are far away have been brought near through Messiah, not conversion to not by conversion to Judaism, but through faith in Jesus. When the gospel spread into the Gentile world through Paul, Barnabas and others, there were those who tracked after them trying to get those who became believers in Messiah Jesus to also convert to Judaism. They were called the Judaizers. They were convinced that to be a real Christian, you had to be Jewish, circumcised if you were a male, keeping the law of Moses and the rituals and festivals of the law. This controversy was dealt with by a council of apostles and elders at Jerusalem in around 48-49. In Acts 4, 15, we read that the council, first of all, disavowed the Judaizers and said they were not going out with any authority from Jerusalem. And they determined that Gentile believers in Jesus Messiah were not under obligation to the law of Moses. Here is the meat of their letter, informing Gentile followers of Messiah Jesus that they did not need to convert to Judaism, be circumcised and come under the law to be Christians. Acts 15, 28-29. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, 
from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. As the outcome of that council, Paul wrote to the Galatians to trumpet that freedom. We are not under law. James also wrote his letter, probably as a follow-up to the council meeting and that decision. Believing Jews and Gentiles are one new man, with access by one spirit to the same Father. There are not two ways of God to God, but one, through Messiah Jesus, by the one Spirit, to the one Father. Move on again in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 20. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Messiah Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We Gentiles have joined Israel. Paul spells it out again. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with the saints, with all of the Old Testament saints. We're in the same company as them. We're members of God's household or family, but it's also uh, a house and a family, a house and a home and a building and a family are connected in, in, in the language there. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus himself is the cornerstone. We are one people, not two. God has one family. The Messiah has one body. The one good shepherd has one flock. And in a moment we join the live recording, which starts with the words of the Lord Jesus himself, following on from his claim to be the good shepherd. And as he speaks his word, I have imagined the Lord Jesus looking up to the horizon as he says this. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be, how many flocks? One. How many shepherds? Who is he talking about there? Us. Gentiles. People who are at one time outside of Israel. But through the good shepherd, come, we come, are brought into his one flock. The flock of God... The sheep of God are those who are under the shepherding leadership of Jesus. So, for centuries, until probably the early part of the 1800s, when a new skiff came in, the Old Testament prophetic references to Israel, Jerusalem and Zion have been applied throughout church history to take reference to God's prophetic purpose through the church of Jesus Messiah. The church has not replaced Israel it's the continuation of Israel. Gentiles are joined to Messiah through faith. The nations come to join biblical Israel and worship Israel's God, just as the Lord spoke through the prophets. Why is this labeled? Oh, I meant to do this. The church is built on the prophets and apostles. I'm, I'm kind of in a minority on this when I think the prophets are speaking about the Old Testament writers and the apostles of the New Testament writers. Jesus is the cornerstone and all of truth is picked on Jesus. The prophets prophesy up to Jesus and the apostles prophesy back, at, back to Jesus. It all relates to him. He's the cornerstone and the whole building grows in truth on both Old Testament and New Testament, which is all about Jesus. So the prophets and the apostles are both building on Jesus or building to Jesus. All right? That's the way I see that one. So why is this 
one new man in Christ Jesus, then the continuation of Israel. Because Israel had already passed through different phases, from Abraham's little family to 12 tribes to a nation under the law, millions living in the wilderness under the law, then a kingdom, and then because of captivity, a remnant, now into, through Jesus, this family, this household, this living temple, the body of Christ. It's because God has fulfilled, completed in Jesus the preceding covenants. His promises to Abraham, Moses and David are wrapped up and completed in Jesus. And the burdens that were there, the, the, uh, the debt that was there, particularly in the law of Moses, has been put away because Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus himself is the new head of this body. Not Jacob, Jesus. And it's under this new covenant in his blood that we now live, and it includes people from all nations. Therefore, this is no longer a a nationality. This is an international body. It includes people from all nations. And we celebrate that with our flags. Every now and again, I have to check, do we still have somebody from there? There, there, there. And there's a few people now who haven't got a flag up yet. So we'll fix that. And then again, to go back to Galatians again, just to mention this. We are not citizens of the earthly Jerusalem, the old city. We're citizens of Jerusalem from above. The new Jerusalem, built on the foundation of the holy apostles and prophets. Okay, move on. The whole building, the whole house, being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You know me by now. This is not a sanctuary. This building is not a sanctuary. We are the habitation of God by the Spirit. And that is even true of a local church. And it's also true of you as an individual Christian. If you're born of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, just as God once dwelt in a physical building in the old city of Jerusalem. When Jesus died on the cross, the the veil of the temple was torn in two. And do you know what it said? Nothing. It was an empty room. It was a completely empty room, had been since they came back from captivity. There was no Shekinah, no Ark of the Covenant, it was empty. You know, they have this saying, Elvis has left the building. God had left the building a long time ago. He now dwells in people who have humble hearts and in local churches that, that honor his name, communities that honor his name, and in the whole worldwide church of Jesus Messiah. So let me tell you this, just to add a little bit of controversy. Anyone who plans to build a temple in Jerusalem is defying God. I'd say that plainly to you. He has no interest in that whatsoever. Go back to Hebrews again to figure that one out. So what is Israel? Let me give you two two different kinds of sets of pictures. Now, first of all, I find this one really helpful, Uh, one theologian some years ago put this together as a thought, and I like it. Think of Israel as being like a river. God started a river with that little family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When they grew to be a nation, millions, God sent them Moses to form a nation. And when they became a nation, they entered into their inheritance. God gave them a king after his own heart, David. And notice there, covenants were made with Abraham, through Moses, with David. Covenants. But then the new and final covenant was brought in in Jesus. And that new covenant takes this kingdom of God, this Israel thing, where? 
to the nations. Cause all nations to come and worship the God of Israel and be joined into God's family called Israel. So a river that gets bigger and wider until until it has reached every people group under heaven. That is the Israel of God. By the way, I'm quoting Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Being an heir of the promises of God and the kingdom was never a matter of natural descent. Throughout history, Gentiles were being added to that community of God. Again and again. In fact, when you go to the genealogy of Jesus, guess what? Two Gentile women, and one of them of not particularly good moral background, two Gentile women are forebears of Jesus. Gentiles were always being added in. Right throughout that whole history. Consider some of the biblical and prophetic images of Israel as, as, as trees. You don't think of a vine as a tree, but no. The vine, the fig tree, the olive tree. And I've given you references there. All of those occur in the New Testament as examples that speak now to us as the disciples of Jesus, as his church, as his followers. In his teaching in the Gospels, we find Jesus warning the leaders of the Jewish nation they would have the kingdom taken away from them and given to another nation or nations that would bear the fruit of the kingdom. The vineyard would be taken away from them. The tree that is unfruitful is to get a short period of further care, but then will be removed if it doesn't bear fruit. And to illustrate that, on his way into Jerusalem, Jesus literally cursed and withered a fig tree. These pictures of going on. In John 15, I love this one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now if you know your Old Testament prophecies, you'll find that four or five times Israel is called the vine. Back in Psalms, Israel is called the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. The thing you need to belong to is me, not some national body. And every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit will be cut off and burned. But every branch in me that bears fruit will get a bit of a snip. So it bears more fruit. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time. And in Romans 11, natural branches are broken off the olive tree. Olive tree again, picture of Israel. Because of unbelief, wild branches, Gentiles, are grafted in through faith. There is one people of God, which is called a number of things in the New Testament, Church of Messiah, yes, but also in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. And let me remind you again, James writes a letter to believing people, to Christians, and says to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That is a prophetic, symbolic statement. It it cannot be understood literally at all. Simply would not be true. You couldn't find them. There's no way of identifying them. They did not exist literally as 12 tribes. So he's writing to Christians. Peter, in his letter, takes things in Deuteronomy, which is declared through Moses, to the people of Israel in the wilderness. I will make you a kingdom of priests. You'll be my special people, my peculiar people. I will make you a light to the Gentiles amongst the nations. And he writes all of those things to us, the church. We are one house, one temple of the Holy Spirit. There is no distinction whether Jew or Gentile. We are children of God and citizens of his kingdom, not by natural descent, but by his gracious election and calling, by conversion from being dead in trespasses and sins to being made alive to God. We live not by keeping the law of Moses, but by following the Spirit. There's no greater or lesser in this body. 
you know, those are more important, those are less important. We are equal. We are equally, we were equally under sin, needing a saviour. Now in Messiah, there is no more Jew and Gentile. We are equal to grace in Messiah Jesus. Again, some scriptures for you from Galatians 3. For as many of you as have been baptised into Messiah have put on Messiah like a garment. There is, notice this, in Messiah, that's the context, there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, for you are all one in Messiah Jesus. And if you belong to Messiah, get this, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That verse sounds revolutionary because it counters, it counterbalances so much of what you've been used to hearing. But is it scripture? Is that the truth? You are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. A bit before that, sorry, in Colossians as well, parallel scripture, in Messiah, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, and then some names describing some of the people who lived on the very outskirts of the Roman Empire, barbarians, Scythians, and then the, the economic model of who's a slave and who isn't, slave and free. Messiah is all in all. This one new man in Messiah Jesus does not have a Gentile section and a Jewish section. It is one without division. In fact, let me say again, I'm not trying to criticise everybody and everybody... It is God's truly international, multicultural people. This Israel of God, this church of Jesus Messiah. For any church to be monocultural is, I believe, to miss something of the glory of this church of Jesus Messiah. So what about the Jewish people today? Not those in the nation of Israel, but throughout the world. Because I believe when we spoke earlier about Romans 11, that prophecy, that word of prophecy, and I believe it is a word of prophecy through Paul, there will be a late final ingathering of Jewish people to faith in Jesus. That's not just talking about the Middle East. There are far more Jewish people who live in the rest of the world and live in the Middle East. So God's promise there applies to all those who count themselves as the natural descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We should pray that they will come to faith. Pray that they're grafted back into Messiah through faith, as Romans Roman teaches. And Paul, in, when he writes Romans 2 through 9 through 11, cries out twice over how deeply, desperately he longs for natural Israel, so to speak, to be converted, to come to faith. He, longed. he even says, I would trade my own salvation if they could have it. I myself would be gladly accursed if they could enter into this faith in Jesus. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. He longed that deeply for them to be saved. My prayer for Israel is that they be saved. We need to pray for the conversion and the salvation of Jewish people. Now having said that, I'm in trouble. Because so many people count saying that as anti-Semitism. Seriously. That I commit to pray for Jewish people around the world to come to faith in Jesus. They take that as, you know, hatred. Well, Paul prayed that and he didn't hate them. He desperately loved them. Would have traded himself over in their place. But he says, I pray, I pray that they may be saved. And that is the way when the full number of the Gentiles has come in 
And Jewish people around the world today are awakened to faith in Jesus. And how that's going to happen, I don't know. But the promise of God is going to happen. In that way, all Israel will be saved. Let me sum up. We are heirs of Abraham. The heirs of the covenant God made with Abraham, who said to Abraham, I will bless you and make your seed as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your seed will possess the gates of their enemies. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your seed because you've obeyed my command. Now we today have that wonderful covenant, but we also have a responsibility to take the blessing of the kingdom of God to the nations of the world. We carry the promises of God. Ephesians 1 verse 3, we are blessed with every blessing of the Spirit. But we carry that blessing to others. And you don't have to go very far to encounter people from another nation nowadays. Right? That's good news. It means you don't have to buy an air ticket to find someone from another nation and take them the good news of the kingdom of God. We have an inheritance. Not just a strip of land in the Middle East. We are promised the whole world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed they will inherit the earth. We get to inherit the whole planet. But even better than that, for God said to Abraham at the very beginning, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your great reward. God himself is our greatest reward. Not even the world, not even the earth. Great reward. But they also have a calling. We are to conduct ourselves in this world as those who are the heirs of God who will inherit a better world. It's those who will live forever in the very presence of the Most High. The Lord appeared to Abraham and gave him promises, but also gave him a covenant responsibility. And it's in this, these words here. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God. By the way, I've added, I kept the first bit in case anybody here thinks you're too old for this, okay? <laughs> I am God Almighty. Live in my presence. Or the old version, literal version is, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. That is what the Lord requires of us today. We, he makes covenant with us. We need to keep covenant with him. How do we keep covenant with God? We're taken back to this Abrahamic kind of way of living by grace through faith. That's what Romans teaches and Galatians teaches. We're children of Abraham, we live the same life as Abraham, following the Lord as he speaks to us. As we're led by the Spirit. We live by faith. Not by a set of rules. But we're to live in his presence, to walk before him, and to be responsible, mature, blameless. Let me just headline that for you. No longer excluded, but brought near. No longer unbelieving, but believing. No longer without hope, but purposeful. No longer guilty, but forgiven. No longer foolish, but wise. No longer rebellious, but obedient. Dear children. No longer living in darkness, but living in the light. No longer without God in this world, but living and walking before him, even in the darkest places of this world. I remember the other day, this promise in Psalm 84, the Lord does not withhold, old versions say, any good thing from those who live with uprightness, integrity. There is a conditionality about the blessing of God. You can chant all day, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, but if you don't conform to his requirement of being obedient, then you're just shouting hollow words. God set apart Abraham for himself and then the tribes of Israel. And now, 
As believing in Gentiles together in one body in Messiah, he sets us apart to declare his name among the nations and to bring blessing to them. We carry this commission to go into all the world declaring the kingdom of Messiah Jesus and bringing the blessing of his presence and his kingdom to all who will receive us and his our message. I want to ask you today, we've run out of time. Do you live by faith in the Lord Jesus? Not just for an hour or two on a Sunday morning, but 24-7. Is that the pattern of your life? The just will live by faith, just as Abraham did. That's the model. The just live by faith, trusting him, depending upon him, asking of him, receiving from him. You don't have all the answers. You don't have all the strength. You don't have all the wisdom. You, you search in here and the cupboard's empty. It's fine because his cupboard's full. We live by faith. <clears throat> you need a new job. You need healing. You need his cupboard's full. We live by faith. Is that true of you? If it isn't, why don't you make a start today? What, what do you mean? Just like that? Well, it, it, okay, I'll, give you, I'll give you a clue. You start by calling on his name and asking him. Lord Jesus, please save me. Let me follow you. Let me know your forgiveness. Let me know a whole new lifestyle in you from today. Let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> Before we break bread. Jesus, uh, Master, you accomplished far more through the cross than I could possibly ever say. We've only picked at a few of the comments here today in Ephesians 2. As to all that you accomplished, you did it by your blood, in your body. In a few moments we'll be handling emblems again of your blood and of your body. All of this and far, far more we've talked about here. You did in yourself for us. We didn't contribute anything. We simply come and ask for faith and grace to believe, to trust, to follow you. We open our hearts to you again and we worship you. Our Master, our Saviour, our Lord, our once for all time sacrifice and our living leader and shepherd. We acknowledge with great humility, we were not your flock, but you've added us to your flock. We've been brought near. We were not the people of God, but we now are the people of God, and we've joined the people of God. That great river that flowed from Abraham, Abraham on through, called Israel. You've given us a place of belonging, of citizenship. You've given us a home, you called us into your very family. We are now the children of God. Such privileges. What can we do but humbly thank you and rejoice in you? Let me just give you one little more word. I, I read, literally sitting in my office this morning, I was looking for something. And I can't even remember it entirely, but it was something like this. And it was based upon what we've read here in Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22. Whenever you feel alone, whenever you feel uncomfortable, whenever you feel discouraged, whenever you feel burdened, 
remember this, who and what you belong to. The lesson of Ephesians is becoming who we already are. Remember who and what you belong to. And that doesn't change. No matter what circumstance you're wrestling with, and I'm not negatively prophesying here during the rest of this week, that cannot change. Because it's because of God that you're in Christ Jesus, not because of your choice. Amen? Amen. Would those who have been asked to serve us, come and serve us? I don't know if we have asked anybody to help us with the breaking bread today.